0: Hello, and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. We have been reading Pynchon's 1997 novel Mason and Dixon and have completed part one, Latitudes and Departures, which we will be covering in its entirety today. Uh, Joining us is Brett Beeble, author of the forthcoming A Mason and Dixon Companion, which will be available through University of Georgia Press in March 2024. Brett, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. It's it's great to be here.
0: Uh, My name is Cody. I'm one of the co-hosts here. I'm Luke. And I'm Kate. And unfortunately, Will is unable to join us for today, so um, we will miss him, and uh, he'll be back, hopefully, for the next episode when we start on part two. But to start, before we kind of dive into the, the book itself, um, Brett, if you don't mind, I wanted to get a little background from you, yourself, and, and your, uh, your history with Pinchon, your experience with uh, writing the book, um, and, and your own just kind of academic background.
1: Sure. Um, uh, let's let's see. I'll start with the general academic background. Um, I, I, I teach uh, in a contingent position at a small liberal arts college in Illinois. I teach mostly creative writing, the occasional lit class. Um, I uh, did graduate work in communication and creative writing. Um, the first pinch on I read. V. I had a a great professor um, who assigned it uh, daringly. Not a lot of undergrads, I think, get assigned V. It's usually Lot 49. Um, Yeah. But I I just, I loved, I fell in love with V. I think I read it junior year. Uh, I very vividly remember that we were on this service trip in Colorado, and there was a day where everybody went skiing, and I stayed in the ski lodge and and read read about profane uh, crawling through the sewers. So maybe, I don't know, maybe that's a bad choice. I don't know, but I thought it was awesome. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, I just, I loved that book. Uh, There was just something Pinchon was after that I hadn't seen anywhere else. I think I carried it around with me the whole rest of my college career, just in a backpack. Like it was some kind of talisman, (laughs) Um, which is, which is, you know, feels like the kind of devotion Pinchon inspires. Um, And then, you know, in graduate school, I, I made my way through Gravity's Rainbow and and worked my way up to to Mason and Dixon um, as well. So, yeah, I just ever since I read that book, I've I've been a big fan of of Pinchon. Um, um
0: Do you have uh, Do you have a favorite personally?
1: I think Mason and Dixon is my favorite. Uh, okay, I think I mean that I'm would excellent. make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm wowed by Gravity's Rainbow. I think is just really technically brilliant. I think it's the way that it fuses kind of ideology and history um, and and prose is really impressive. Uh, it, it just it almost feels like it was written by 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 a god of writing, mm-hmm. <laughs> and Mason yeah. Dixon feels like it was written by a person. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I, I think I may be more impressed by Gravity's Rainbow, I guess. Um, but but I find Mason and Dixon to be a more enjoyable. Read in terms of if I was going to label it my favorite. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 a book that I really enjoy. Um, obviously, spending this much time on it.
2: <laughs> what led you to to decide to undertake writing a Mason and Dixon companion? Was it like the lack of of companions or secondary sources on the book, or was it something that you always wanted to do? I'm I'm very curious because it's an undertaking.
1: Yeah, it is. I. I think I, I read this book, Mason and Dixon, the second time uh, when my uh, wife was pregnant with my daughter. And it was kind of like the last big book that I was <laughs> figured I'd be able to read for a while. Um, and, and I just remember kind of being blown away by all the detail, all the history. Uh, I remember reading it very slowly and, and kind of really trying to soak in every bit. And And that was in 2017, I think. And And I thought, okay, I would love to write. I had read the Companion to Gravity's Rainbow, which I found super helpful uh, and informative um and I thought, man, it'd be really cool to do that for this book uh and i didn't I didn't think I got started on that project for another three or four years um but that was really the the germ of it and then and then it just you know it, it was it was great yeah
0: <laughs> so just as a uh, just to kind of get i guess a general idea of of the amount of work that you put into the, like what was what was the time frame like that from the the start of putting this together to it obviously is being published next year but um did this take like a significant amount of time to do or did you find that it was pretty easy once you got started
1: I mean it was great it was it was it was a lot of fun it was the most fun I've ever had on a writing project um so I don't think it was difficult in the sense of like oh man I got to do four pages today um mm-hmm. it was it was time consuming in in the sense of I think I started formally, like I was casting around like, hey, does this book exist? Emailing sort of pinch on scholars being like, do you have any literature you can recommend? Um, and, and they were very helpful in terms of recommending a few sources. So there was like a period of kind of just exploring and in spare time, uh, figuring out. Just, just reading about Mason and Dixon and getting s- somewhat of a grip on the academic literature. Once I started actually kind of annotating the text, it was not all that different from a slow read. I think it was like I started in July of 2021 and I had a, you know, a sample that I could send around for peer review by late August. And I had the oh. whole thing done by February of the next year. So it was probably seven months um, of like, you know, 30 hours, 30 hours a week, every spare moment, um, (laughs) going through it. So it was a lot of time, but, but it, it pushed itself along, I think pretty, pretty smoothly from, from my perspective. So I just, I liked having a guide. I usually write fiction. So fiction, you know, it's like I sit for two hours and then I have to throw away half or all of what I wrote. (laughs) This project Mm -hmm. was like, Hey, (laughs) I finished three pages and now I'm, I've got three pages done that I don't have to do tomorrow. So, yeah.
2: Out of curiosity, because we were all finding it pretty hard to find secondary sources or, or good sort of guides, Pinchon specific or not, when we were undertaking reading this book, what, what did you hear back from the Pinchon scholars as far as recommended readings or things that, that may have already existed either about Mason and Dixon, the novel, or just in general for, for listeners who want to, to kind of cast out a wider net?
1: Sure, it's, it's a great question. There's a few volumes on Mason and Dixon, Dixon specifically like edited scholarly collections. I think one is called "The Multiple Worlds of Mason and Dixon." Um, the there's some great general Pinchon stuff. Uh, there's a historian, literary critic named David Cowart who writes a lot about Pinchon and especially about Pinchon and history. Um, and Georgia was kind enough when I pitched the project to send me, I think, one of one of his books, uh, just like a, a uncorrected proof of, of that, so that I could take a look. Um, so there's, those are two sources that come to mind. A lot of the response from the scholars was like, um, you know, here are some ideas, here's some essays, here's some people who study this. I'm not sure what a publisher will say about the market for a book like this when the wiki exists. So, so that was something, that, was something <laughs> that, I had to, that I had to think about. Um, yeah, but. Uh, Once I, you know, I pitched it and I think my pitch was uh, the wiki is great, um, but it's sort of annoying to have to toggle (laughs) between the book and the screen. And wouldn't it be nice to have two books that you could just sort of look at side by side? Mm -hmm. And also, I think the wiki is and, and my editor at Georgia came up with this sort of idea that the wiki is not it's sort of voiceless it's kind of random annotations and some of them are really useful and Mm -hmm. some of them are not. Um, and so to have a kind of unified guide was helpful. I think the other part of the rationale is that this book feels like the most prescient, I suppose. Um, you know, just, just the one that's really in tune with sort of currents of American history that are playing out in the moment, whether that's stuff about, about race relations or stuff about, um, you know, Capitalism and exploitation and some of those kinds of things. Um, this book feels really kind of in the moment in a way that that Gravity's Rainbow, I think, is more keyed into the sixties and seventies. If that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, uh, that was, I think, a big part of the the rationale for this.
0: Well, I, I for one can definitely say that I, I appreciate that there will be a a physical. Reference book that we can go to. I I know, you know, as you mentioned, the wiki is great, and it's nice to have that. But a lot of times, when I pick up a book and I'm going to read, I specifically don't want to have my eyes buried on a screen. Uh, You know, I'm trying to get away from that, especially after you know, if I'm if I've been working all day or whatever the case may be. So to have a you know a physical text that I can have next to me while I'm I'm reading uh, would just be better, I think, for for me at least as a reader. And I'm sure there's people who you know prefer having a you know smaller device or something like that, but. I think there's a lot of people who are going to, you know, really appreciate having something like this, especially because, you know, as Kate said, so much of the existing um, scholarly work that is out there, as far as reference material and, and things like that for his work, is really relegated to, mainly to his early work, specifically, uh, you know, Gravity's Rainbow and, and Lot Forty Nine. So. Um, the fact that now we will have something for his, his later work and for one of his best later works, I think, um, is, is a great service and, and we definitely appreciate it.
1: I, I hope you're right. <laughs> I, I certainly <laughs> hope there's a market for this. Um, but I, I mean, it's a, it's a labor of love too. I mean, I, I, like I said, oh, sure, I, had sure. so, I had so much fun doing this project. Um, and, and I, you know, still could talk about this book for the next 50 years. Hopefully I'll be able to. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, we've – I think all of us have, have at some point in this show mentioned that there's so much going on in all yeah. of his books. You know, they're they're endlessly rereadable. You can always find new things, and especially with, you know, the aid of a companion to add historical context to it that just adds such a layer of depth to, you know, processing whatever it is you're reading. And even if you're only taking away a few new things on, on a reread, you're still getting a few new things that weren't there Uh, for you the first time or second time or however many times before you've read it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I felt a little bit like Mason and Dixon while I was doing the companion because it's like you're just (laughs) never going to get it. You're never going to get it exactly right. And so much of it is like shaving off tiny, tiny error points. (laughs) Over and over again, going back and remeasuring. Um, so there was, yeah, it was. So hopefully, yeah, I feel good about the end. I mean, I I do feel good about the end product, and hopefully, hopefully, other people will appreciate it too. I'm, I'm I wish, in some ways, I wish I could fast forward to to the book coming out. <laughs> um, yeah, <I> bet. <laughs> but I'll enjoy the intro as well.
2: <laughs> do you have any recommendations for people coming to Mason and Dixon for the first time? as far as, maybe not to say how to read it, but how, how to get the most out of their experience of reading this novel? Because I know his his larger books tend to be the ones that people are not necessarily afraid to read, but but have some apprehension towards approaching. Um, do you have any specific ideas or advice on on people who, who are coming to Mason and Dixon and maybe either find the language confusing or, or just how they can enjoy their experience more, I guess, until your companion is published next year?
1: Yeah, um, I think so much of pinchon for me is always about just allowing stuff to wash over you when you don't have the energy to look it up. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yep. getting, getting caught up yeah. in the narrative uh, a little bit. Um, and so I think, I think that's, that's just so different than how we usually read things and that, that mm-hmm. how everybody has been taught to read. And that's something that I think I'm still learning with, with Pinch is, is how to do that. Um, so I think that's, that's a big part of it. I think, Really, the big stuff for Mason and Dixon feels like understanding a little bit about history and economy in the late 18th century. And 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 if you have a decent grasp of sort of those big currents in history, or want to do some background reading, I think some of that stuff is really really the the way to go. Um, at trying to to get grounded in the historical context, big picture. Right, um, uh, because Pinchon covers so much of Mason and Dixon as people, that that the events outside that he's constantly referencing are the stuff that's usually the most obscure.
0: Makes sense, yeah,
2: yeah, it's a great point.
0: Um, well, let's go ahead and I guess we can kind of dive into the the book itself. And uh, Luke, did you have any um, questions before we do that?
3: Um, I do have some questions I can ask later. I guess on the subject okay. of the first part, uh, I was just going to ask Brad if he had any favorite parts of the first section.
1: The the Jenkins Ear Museum scene is one of my <laughs> favorites. I think reading yeah. reading, <laughs> reading that scene is sort of what made me want to do the companion uh, because there's mm-hmm. so many just and this happens in V too, where where Pinchon is really good at conjuring these sort of out of the way locales um whether mm-hmm. he's in venice and v or egypt and v um, or saint helena i mean i think he's like reading these travel guides <laughs> from you know the, the baedecker guides they he mentions that a lot in v um, and just the way he's able to kind of recreate uh saint helena which is a place that i you know i had never heard of um before reading mason and dixon is really impressive i mean it feels so it, it almost feels like you've been there when you've read it. It's like, it's like travel writing in a certain way, but, but really uh, impressive kind of travel writing. Um, so that, that was a moment that really stood out to me in that, in that section. And, and the, the, the joke about Mason's corporate surplus as he tries to crawl through this tunnel (laughs) was was really uh, memorable as well.
2: Kind of related to that, but now that you've sort of gone through so much work to understand the broader context in these different places that he brings up, was there anything? Because we've mentioned on several episodes how shocked we are at the level of knowledge that he had at the time writing these books, whether it's you know in the '60s with Rala 49* or in the, the the late '90s with with this novel. Was there anything that surprised you that he would have known about to include, or that you know, kind of? would have been so obscure that that for him to have found it and put it in this book was was a bit of a shock.
1: I mean, you know, the the Robert Jenkins being governor of St. Helena is amazing, right? <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, how do you, and just making that connection, that's one thing. You know, later in the book, a lot of the stuff that really impresses me is where you can kind of see like, oh, Pinchon must have stumbled upon this in his research. And then the way that it gets worked into the text, um, there's a part in America where Felipe the eel eel comes up. Um, And I know I'm skipping ahead, so I'm not, I don't think I'm spoiling anything by just mentioning that there's, there's Mm -hmm. an an electric eel that shows up. (laughs) Um, uh, But I found an article from uh, the American transactions of the philosophical society. I think it's called um, from 1786 about an electric eel from Suriname. And you know, the, my, the theory is like, well, that magazine or journal or whatever is probably lying around the Les House, and, <laughs> and, you know, so here it is, worked into the narrative, right? And so it's it's stuff yeah. like that where where you're, you're just in awe of sort of the connections that Pinchon is able to make, right? To Like he probably yeah. sort of stumbled across this and, and figured out a way to work it in that just works so seamlessly with the story itself. Um, so it's stuff like that that really always jumped out to me the most.
2: Yeah, it it his his ability for knowledge gathering it, it never ceases to amaze me. No matter how many yeah. times I read these books. Yeah. Um.
0: So with part one, um, you know, we're mostly getting to know our our titular characters, but also you know, so many of these other kind of supporting characters. Um. What I'm curious about in in a sort of broad uh, look at this is, is how, you know, with, with the evidence that's available and the research that you were able to do, how accurately are a lot of these characters portrayed? Like I, I did a one for the last, uh, episode we did, I did a little bit of a dive into like William Emerson and, and Franz Mesmer and, and it seemed that his representations of them, although, you know, we, we all know that he tends to kind of distort these characters when he inserts these historical characters into the novels. But there's also, at least from what I gathered, a pretty accurate representation of of these kind of eccentric characters, specifically. Um, how how close to reality do you, do you feel like he got to uh, like Mason and Dixon and and all of these kind of side characters?
1: Honestly, I think you could read this book in a history class. <laughs> oh, wow. um, and assign I mean, I think, and in part that's because so much of the mission is trying to make these people feel alive in a way that you don't get history um so you know there are things that we will never be able to know uh, about anybody (laughs) even contemporary people right even people even our friends um but the way that he is able to build sort of reasonable hypotheses around these characters uh is i think very very accurate now he's definitely changing bits and i try to stay attuned to stuff where like okay here's where he's really kind of changing the his, the historical record for the purposes of his story, but there really just just aren't very many moments like that. A lot of it is he finds a very specific detail, he maybe embellishes it a little bit, or more often he just fills in the question of what kind of person or what kind of relationship would feature this detail, right? Like, like Jeremiah Dixon, what kind of person, what kind of Quaker would wear a red coat? right and sort of be ostracized (laughs) by his community um and and he just fills in that those bits of personality in a way that i think makes logical sense uh even though we'll never be able to verify it or no it's totally unverifiable the the sort of images he's presenting feel very much based on you know real historical data and allow you to kind of make make those leaps
3: yeah to build off cody's question i specifically wanted to ask you about masculine masculine because he's portrayed as a bit of a crackpot weirdo. And then it was surprising to me, and I know that this is historically accurate, but it was surprising to me that he was made head of the, like, Astronomy Royal Society or whatever. Uh, but in the book, you know, he's portrayed as, as such a such a weirdo that it just kind of surprised me that he would get any kind of official leadership role.
1: A lot of stuff around that I found around Neville the mas- Masculine. There's a more recent article I found about sort of his reputation kind of being revived in certain circles um but a lot of the historical stuff around him you know centers on this battle about longitude um so the the big controversy there was a major prize being awarded uh to to anybody who would come up with a method to accurately determine longitude at sea and and mescalon was really invested in, in doing that by finding the position of the moon um and even sort of it seems like maybe put a finger on the scale to to reject trials of Harrison's uh, chronometer uh, or like a really accurate watch that would make that process easier. Um, he's also definitely historically connected to Clive of India. Um, and so there there are kinds of ideas about, about nepotism or about sort of kind of putting a thumb on the scale for personal interest. Um, he was also, there's a lot of, and the last part of the book, part three, deals with some of the internal royal society drama that's playing out at this time. Um, and, and Meskling was sort of resisting the presidency later in his life of the royal society. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, he's, there's a lot of controversy around him. I'm not sure that's answering the question so much as as, as an info dump. Does that does that help,
3: Luke? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that does help. I mean, it, it does kind of paint a picture of him as a little bit more serious than perhaps he's portrayed in the novel which is yeah. helpful.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was, he was a, a, you know, a real serious scientist. Um, he cared a lot about precision. Um, he really did want to determine accurate longitude. He thought doing it by hand, essentially, was the most accurate way to do it. You know, we'll never know how much there's sort of nefarious stuff going on um, and, and how much he's, he's, he's doing so in a, in a well-intentioned way. Um, but yeah, I, I think, and, and Mason, you know, clearly resents him. Um, and you always have to ask if Cherry Coke is filtering some of that resentment in his frame narrative, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> and, and I think what Mason resents is his closeness to power, right, his, his closeness to that central circle, which I think Mason really does want to be a part of, um, uh, more so than Dixon.
2: Sort of branching off from what you had said with the, like, you could teach this book in a history class, did you have any thoughts on on the decision to... Render the prose in pretty accurate 16th century English. Does it does it read as accurate to you after going through all of these old pamphlets and and sort of additional information in, in compiling together your companion?
1: Yeah, yeah, it 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 has its own internal logic. Um, I don't know if you've all if you all read ever ever read Marlon James books. Um, he's a, he writes a lot about Caribbean history and he writes a little bit in sort of like a Jamaican patois in some of his novels and after a mm. while you just get used to it right you just start thinking that way um and, and yeah. i think this book this book has quite a bit of that where the language kind of is difficult at first um and i mean i think probably 20 percent of the companion is just defining obscure words mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> to to make that process a little easier um, but uh once you once i find for me once you get into it 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 it's it's you sort of forget it's there after a while.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely the same, same way. That was kind of, you know, for me, the first time I came to it, it was on my shelf for a long time. It was just the one pension book that I hadn't touched and I would pick it up and, and start it and be like, this is, I can't parse this language. And then I would just put it back and I would keep coming back to it. And I finally got to a point um, a couple of years ago where I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to sit down with it. And yeah, absolutely. Once you kind of break that, that um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but you, you kind of get past the the barrier, so to speak, um, and it just kind of clicks, and it you know I've, I found for me at least finding a voice to read it in, um, to kind of have voices assigned to these characters that, that could speak almost in my head in that, in that accent kind of helped me break through and, and really get a feel for it. And then once I did, yeah, it was just smooth sailing from there.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I think I, I think of the book as sort of a sometimes we'll look at pictures of of grandparents in black and white and have to remind myself that, that they did not see the world in black and white. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and, and so this book feels like that. It's like a full color photograph of the 18th century, a full color, you know, motion picture of the 18th century. And, and, and you can't do that without, I think, using the linguistic conventions of that time, because language is so tied up in culture. Um, And so I think, artistically, that feels like the right choice to me, um, despite the fact that it maybe, you know, makes the book more difficult, um, at least at first.
0: Well, I think it also goes back to what you had mentioned earlier about his, the way he uses historical characters and, and kind of humanized them while still portraying them accurately. Because I think for me, I, I tend to not read historical fiction too often because I find that it either it, it does one of two things typically. it either focuses too much on the history, and so the narrative is really just dry, and I, I can't push forward through it because it just feels like I'm reading a history book with you know walking into all the characters, or they focus too much on the characters, and the history just kind of gets lost and it you know moves away from that representation that I kind of want in a novel like that. but this this book marries those two elements so perfectly that it it never feels you know, slow. The, the characters feel real. I care about them. Um, and it's, I, it's so hard to, I think, find historical fiction that does that. And then when you add on that layer of, of the uh, historically accurate language, it's just, you know, it, it creates a book that I don't know that I have found anything similar to. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, Pinchin himself, you know, his books vary so much between each other. Um, but I've not read a historical novel that that feels as alive as this one does.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. And I'm glad Brett brought up Marlon James because the closest that I can think of Cody is is A History of Seven Killings.
0: That's one of as, the books that's on my bookshelf e- that I need to Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah I couldn't agree more, uh, that.
3: Brett, uh, so this is kind of more of a fun question and I have my own answers, but who would you cast as Mason and Dixon in a film or TV adaptation?
1: So yeah, that's a great question. I actually I actually cut a line from my companion. It was a footnote, I think, but uh, I had said that to me, these guys are too old to play these characters, but uh, Vince Vaughn and, and Paul Giamatti <laughs> feel like feel like the pair. I don't, oh I don't know, maybe that makes me too goofy, uh, but the peer reviewer was like, Vince Vaughn, no way. Um, you need a British actor like Hugh Laurie or something. And so I just ended up cutting, cutting, cutting the line. Um, but those two, those two jump out. Um, I think Jesse Eisenberg would make a pretty decent Mason. Um, oh, that's a good
0: choice. Yeah.
1: This, uh was the guy, I don't know if you watched. been watching Succession lately. So the guy who plays Tom is a British actor. Um oh, or yeah, yeah. Dixon, um, Matthew McFadden, I think his name is. Um, I don't think Daniel Radcliffe would make a would make a terrible Mason either. I'm basically like typecasting completely on height. <laughs> like it's <you need> someone <laughs> short for Mason and <laughs> tall for Dixon. And and then you're good.
0: <laughs> so I'll piggyback on that. Do you if you were to see a film adaptation or or many, I kind of think this would work better as like a mini series. Um who who do you think could tackle it as far as a, a director?
1: So I think, yeah, definitely would have to be TV. Um, there's a really pinch on inspired show on AMC uh, Lodge 49. I don't know if any of you have watched. No, this. never heard so of it. It's,
3: yeah, I've seen the first season. Ad-
1: okay. Yeah. Um, I, I think Jim Gavin would do a, a, a good job with this. Um, he's the, the creator and writer of that show. Um, so, uh, you know, I think he would be, he would probably be the first person I would think of. Um, I'd be curious to see if you all have other thoughts. I mean, I think TV definitely has to be the, uh, the way to go here. I think you could do a great yeah. prestige, prestige drama for this. I don't know how complicated it would be to secure the rights, but I I've been like, man, for my next project, maybe I should try to write a pilot and see where it goes, but I don't think that'll <laughs> ever happen. <as> well. so, <laughs> you all should do it.
0: <laughs> it's, it's an interesting one because I feel like with. With some of his other work, I can I can kind of imagine certain directors tackling it and doing a good job. I I kind of think that something like Lot Forty Nine, the the kind of conspiratorial nature of it, I, I felt like David Fincher could do a good job of that. With his, you know, he, yeah. he tends to do a lot of that kind of conspiratorial stuff, and and really, and he's got a good eye for detail. So I feel like he could do something good with something like Mason and Dixon. But I don't think it's I think he tends to work with darker material. So I don't think he would be right for this. And then someone like Charlie Hoffman could do a good, um, gravity's rainbow. Yeah. But I, I think this is too down to earth for his style. So I, I really don't know. Like and PTA is the, is the natural inclination just because he did inherent vice and there's, you know, the heavy rumors that he's doing Vineland. I don't know that he would want to do a mini series or that he would be yeah. the right choice for that either though.
1: Yeah. I, I also think maybe somebody like, uh, is it Jane Campion or Jane Champion? I can never remember. Uh, she did The Piano and uh, The Power oh, of the yeah, Dog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like just, I mean, she's really incredible with history. Uh, so so that, again, she's more of a film director, but she seems like somebody who I would definitely trust to do the historical part. Because, um, yeah. Um, and and, and the, the sort of strangeness of her, her work um, fits, although more in like a Fincher way than a, than a comedic way. Um,
2: yeah yeah similar to that i would say robert eggers would be a good choice from a standpoint Mm. of the strangeness of his work but also from his his devotion to historical portrayals because you know his script for the witch is an accurate dialogue to the the time period he was very dedicated to representing the viking age historically uh in in the northmen like he he seems to have a real obsession with making sure that Elements of his films are are portrayed accurately to to the time periods they're taking place in, but again, I don't. Similar to Jane Campion, I don't think he would be interested in doing a miniseries. He seems to be to be a, to a movie guy. Well, the plus thing, the plus side is,
0: it would definitely it would work as a miniseries, and I think it could be sold as such. I think the the best example of of that recently was the the Twin Peaks return, which was presented as a as a series but really when you boil it down was just an 18-hour movie Mm. um so you you can definitely tackle something like this in that in that long form um way but it would it's i just think yeah hammering down the right people because it would have to be perfectly cast and and you gotta get the right director and writer and so many of those pieces have to fall into place otherwise i think it just there's too much at risk to uh to do it wrong
1: yeah,
3: for Taika, sure. Taika Waititi, uh did the did that pirate show, which would have been set around this time. So Taika Waititi does have at least yeah. some experience with historical stuff, and he would definitely capture. He'd probably go a little bit too hard on the on the silly aspect, uh, which is always there with Pinchon. But
1: yeah, I mean, I th- I just I, I do feel like though that this book is maybe the most visually friendly of all the Pinchon. Novels, um, yeah. You know, I, I know people are drawn to vineland and their PTA doing Vinland or thinking about it, and and Inherent Vice, um, but this this book feels like it's the richest to me for a, a sort of long form visual narrative. It's just you know whether somebody has the the budget can figure out yeah. how to monetize <laughs> it, um, especially with all the changes going on at HBO. Who knows? Um, but yeah.
0: Well, and, and to kind of branch off from from the, the adaptation concept of this, I, I did want to thank you for validating my Mason and Dixon as Mulder and Scully connection. Um, yeah, I, no problem. I, I felt really, I, you know, I, I really showed my age when I put that out there. Um, but it was something that I, I kind of cued in on this, this doing this read through. Um, and I, I can't get it out of my head now. It's still there. Um, but I, I've, I'm just glad there's at least one other person out there who who was on the same page with me as
2: that
1: you're welcome
2: yes. <laughs> <laughs> kind of similar to that idea of, of of the Mulder and scully and the the supernatural or, or metaphysical aspects of of the first part in your research for writing the companion did you come up with any information as to the the astrological aspects of the first part because that was something that that none of the four of us really had much knowledge of or or mm-hmm. information in how it supports the text i'd be curious if you turned up anything interesting there
1: i I think the most interesting thing is just the the accuracy of those natal charts they cast on saint helena um that they match (laughs) that that the pigeon was clearly looking at what it would be and 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 that's the case i mean it certainly fits into the whole i mean one of the major tensions of the book right is is this explosion in scientific knowledge versus Mm -hmm. the the disappearance of kind of more mystical or or nature-centered ways of knowing and astrology and Pinchon, I think, loves to violate expectations about things like astrology, right? Like, like if if the immediate gut reaction from the educated world is it's hogwash, I think he'll try to redeem it in, in certain ways. Um, like that happens yes. a lot in Gravity's Rainbow, and so I, I think I think that's a big part of. Where the astrology is involved, obviously the tarot plays a big role in, in gravity's rainbow. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it certainly frames this idea, you know, you know, Mason and, and Mescaline in that scene, they and Mason later in the bar in part one, they sort of scoff at people who are operating on a more superstitious worldview. Um, but but Pinchon, I think, and he's got that essay, the Is It Okay to be a Luddite essay, where he he really argues that. That that's a deep need that people have to, to believe in this kind of mystical worldview and when science explodes and takes that away you know there are consequences to that um, and that, that you know can be very troubling um, yeah. and, and that are worth thinking about uh, really deeply so you know I think astrology is probably not as in tune here as it is as the tarot is in Gravity's Rainbow, for example. But but it's definitely there. And and that t- somebody I think I read a critic who called Mason and Dixon like a seven hundred and seventy three page version of Is it okay to be a Luddite? And I think that's largely accurate. Right, it's just a book that's really about exploring this tension. um yeah. So yeah, I don't know if that speaks directly to the astrology, but I think you know that seems to me to be why it's there.
2: Was there any real historical evidence to support the idea that? Uh, not necessarily maybe mason in particular and and masculine but that these uh people in the royal society did do uh, astrological readings for people for money was that something that was ever mentioned or brought up anywhere that you looked
1: so i'm not sure i'm not sure any of that ever made it into the companion but i I did find sort of offhand references to you know that that people would people that were involved in these things would occasionally do these side jobs to make to make a quick a quick buck right (laughs) um or or like that it makes sense that they would sort of marketize their skill um to, to sure. something that people actually cared about because people tended not to care about figuring out longitude by by doing lunars unless unless they were sailors yeah. right or, or eic bigwigs. so um yeah i mean that that part that made sense to me um and i did find some passing references to it um i don't think it ever made it into the companion just because i couldn't nail it down <laughs> um, in a way that i wanted to to be able to say like they definitely did this um
3: so this is a bit random and it doesn't come up too much until the end of section one uh but we talked about in our group chat about the jesuit conspiracy stuff and uh will and kate linked it to the jacobite revolts which i had to look up and research and then also the jesuits Mm -hmm. role in educating young people which i I have a cousin who goes to i think fordham so i was aware of that but um I don't I just was wondering how much you research into that, um, like why that was included, perhaps, and how historically accurate it would be um, that there would have possibly been a Jesuit conspiracies going on or anything like that.
1: Yeah, so I think um, there's a few things like I I did some research on, you know, the the Jesuits were were involved and, and have a long history of kind of missions to China um, so, and that, of course, comes out in the book. And later you'll get the sort of Zhang-Zarpazo uh, rivalry that will cement some of that. Um, the the Jesuits are kind of falling out of favor in Europe. Um, I think they're that I think maybe was it you, Luke, or maybe Will, who mentioned like section 23 and 24 being the most confusing because there's this really long conversation about like British history <laughs> and, and succession. Um <laughs> And, and I think there's a line in there about Maria Teresa being the Jesuits' last protectress, um, and, and they're sort of falling out of favor in Europe um, at, at the moment that that conversation is happening. Um, but yet, you know, they are also... Kind of still associated by the British characters uh, with the French, and there's the the long political rivalry between the English and the French. One of the things that surprised me as I read this, because I the first time I read the novel, you know, I was very much in tune to like, oh, that those Jesuits, that Jesuit conspiracy. I say that as someone who's Catholicly educated all through university, um, but <laughs> but you know, so I was very much into that. But the more that I, you know, the second time and 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 the third time and going through it for the companion. That's always invoked by the English characters. (laughs) The the Jesuits are always sort of the big bad for these British characters, the thing to be skeptical of. Um, And, you know, I I think there's reasons to be skeptical of the Jesuits, of course, you know, their role in the Inquisition and and all that. Um, There's also this question of, is that a distraction from the quote-unquote real conspiracy of the novel, right? Um, Which is that there's these slaves everywhere that nobody sees. (laughs) right so so how much of his is is it are these characters after this real conspiracy and how much are the jesuits a kind of boogeyman Uh, and i think there's one line in america that speaks to that directly this idea that like you know dixon uh you know saw jesuits uh, was thinking about jesuit conspiracies and then then the the narrator says something like and though he passed the four slaves he saw none of them right And so, I I think that part was surprising to me. That you know, maybe it's kind of a cover for the characters, even though there's certainly a real historical basis to some of the wrongs the Jesuits um, committed. Um, I think, as far as their role in educating the youth, um, their role in education, their connection to to the French, and and, you know, so there's reason for the British to be skeptical of them, (laughs) right? Um, But uh, that was just something that was surprising to me. That felt very convoluted. I hope it makes sense.
3: The Jesuits were started in Paris, correct? I think I read that.
1: Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, they're they're founded by a Spanish, uh, Spanish, by Ignatius Ignatius of Iola. Um, okay, okay. So, hmm. but but they they certainly were associated um, with kind of continental Europe, and the Spanish are political rivals of the English as well um, at this time. So there's. There's just a lot of those kinds of conspiracies or um, paranoias happening, um, and and they're not they're not unfounded. But the question that I was asking is like, well, how much of it is a cover, and how much of it is, you know, a real conspiracy, quote unquote, right?
0: Mm-hmm. So, kind of on that note, um, there, there, we're we're kind of used to the idea that history is written by the the winners of of wars and and conflicts. But I think the more accurate way to put that would be that it's it's written and shaped by the people in power. Uh, who have the money to influence, you know, the way things are are recorded and and passed on, uh, and I, I think that's something that Pinchon tends to uh, really touch on, especially in the the bigger novels. Um, how do you think that the the kind of influence and control that the EIC and the Royal Society had at the time that this book is taking place affected how we view the history from that time?
1: Yeah, completely. It's a great question, uh, and. You know, there's obvious ways in which it does it, right, uh, that most of the records that Pinchon is parsing are are coming to us through the Royal Society or through the East, East India Company or through, you know, some kind of landed privileged organization that's, that's keeping these records. Um, I think in my introduction, I talk about sort of the 1619 Project, um, which is, you know, this effort to revise, revive kind of history that's been lost to, to focus on you know, how America and, and slavery and exploitation have kind of been entwined from the beginning. Um, so that's, I think, one obvious way, right? We, we don't have those records. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, we have to we have to make, I think, larger leaps and, and, and make bigger guesses. The other way that I think you we realized as I went through the novel, that's maybe smaller and more subtle, is that every time Mason is writing something down in his journal, which is a big source, especially for the second section, he knows the EIC or the Royal Society is going to be reading it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So like, he's not, you know it's not like a private journal that's only for him. Um, And so the records that we have are also in some way a performance. He's sort of presenting a picture for his bosses. Uh, And, and, and I think part of the book is asking, even that stuff we do have, how reliable is it? Um, And so the novel almost becomes a counterweight to that. Right. So, yeah, you're absolutely right that we have these sources that are are written by people in power, but they're also written for people in power. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you you sort of use the underground um, stuff that's probably going around. Right. That was probably a real part of how people live.
3: Uh, So I was curious specifically about Dixon and uh, he's portrayed as uh, what I would have called growing up like a player a bit. It's not necessarily. (laughs) Like, you know, it's not it's not a major focus. I do think it's he's kind of just portrayed as a bit of a ladies man, uh, somebody who kind of goes from woman to woman. But I was kind of wondering if that was just because he we have no record of him getting married or if there was actual like, you know, if Mason wrote anything down about that or stuff like that.
1: There are people running around um, county Durham and, uh, you know, parts slightly to the south where Dixon Ancestors live that, that claim to be sort of direct descendants of of Jeremiah Dixon um, and some of that might be you know later in the book you know still in a relationship will be introduced and that's definitely based on historical fact um you know there just there wasn't a lot about Dixon I think a lot of that is pinch on sort of taking the broad strokes and and kind of messing with it and playing around with it um, and just sort of having dixon kind of counter dower mason um you know I, I certainly didn't find like records of of dixon's greatest pickup lines <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> um that would have been awesome i hope that source exists yeah yeah um yeah i didn't i didn't i didn't find anything like that um, so i would i'd be inclined to sort of you know this project is like you're never sure like to get into the companion. I feel like I had to be like 95% sure of something, but so much of Mm -hmm. it is just getting comfortable with like, Oh, this is my reasonable guess. Um, and so, you know, for that question, you know, my reasonable guess is like, yeah, Pinchon's probably probably just sort of filling in some color for fun and for the record. Um, although, you know, it's entirely possible. I think he had plenty of primary sources, plenty of archival work that that I didn't have access to. So it's entirely possible that he, he had something. I would never rule that out, uh, but I couldn't find it.
2: <laughs> kind of spinning off from that, given that there was there's so little published information, at least to the to the layman about Jeremiah Dixon. Was there anything you came across that either had the validity to make it into the companion or not? And it's just interesting that you found about him, um, given how little sort of widely based knowledge there is about him.
1: The stuff about his relationship with the Quaker Church, I think, was was interesting, and and there's there's a couple of references to that in the beginning. Um, the just that he was kind of on the outs because he he sort of had this ostent, ostentatious style of dress, um, and that was something that sort of people were skeptical of. You know, I think that was definitely like, okay, yeah, it makes sense that Pinchon would build out build out from here. Um, That's probably the big one. Just his, his role as a surveyor. And there are some, I found some maps that he drew uh, from the, there's a, in Durham, Durham has like a preservation society uh, with all these historical personages. They have the, the, the whip uh, that will become very important later in the novel um, that's sort of surrounded by family lore. Um, So there, there is a lot of that stuff that, that exists. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing Pinchon, you know, went to Durham and visited those sites. There was a Pinchon conference held in Durham a few years ago. I wasn't able to attend. Um, but, but when I've spoken to Um, other Pinchon scholars you know that's something that they mentioned just sort of the artifacts that were there um you know um the biggest thing i found was probably that detail about the quaker church and the maps because i love i share your y'all's love of maps (laughs) yeah (laughs) we talked about (laughs) this episode i think um so finding those i think was 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 great um uh, and and just sort of being able to look through some of the things he drew i think the wiki actually linked his hands on that yeah yeah
0: so on on that note um is there any evidence that you found um or any indication anywhere in in the research that you did of anyone other than mason and dixon being considered to go to america and and do the surveying that they ended up doing
1: i didn't i didn't see anything along those lines and i didn't i didn't look too deeply into that part of it i think you know um obviously the boundary dispute between Maryland and Pennsylvania was this really long running thing. They needed it to get resolved. Um, they needed an accurate survey, you know, and they commissioned Mason, Mason and Dixon to do it. Um, I think it's, it's, it's possible if not probable that there were conversations about like, who's the best person to do this, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. right? Um, who's going to give us our money's worth. I'm sure those, those existed. Um, but I, I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't find any, any names.
0: If that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, the only other question I have written down um, is referencing the, the cheese rolling event. So I don't know how much you found on this, but I'm, I'm curious to know how the, the little bit of research I did, you know, basically verified that it's a thing. And But there's kind of a little bit of, of uncertainty as to how long it has actually been going on. Um, I read... Uh, one article had mentioned that it they could trace it back, I think, accurately 200 years. But there's evidence that it may have been going on for much longer than that even. Um, so I'm not sure yeah, if I maybe that I was the found on that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I just found that it's a real festival. <laughs> I mean, it's I think we is probably on equal footing there. Um, and that's, I mean, I think... Mason and Dixon, to me, always, they talk about the sandwich a lot in the novel. It always feels like mm-hmm. it's structured like a sandwich or maybe like the first British pizza. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Pinchon's got all this <laughs> stuff lying around and and he kind of puts it together in this way that makes it into something new. Um, and I think it mm-hmm. probably tastes a lot better than that than that pizza. Um, I think a lot of things do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but that feels <laughs> like, the, you know, like so he finds this, oh, isn't that weird? I'd like to work that in, <laughs> right? right. Um, so a lot of the companion is like, a lot of it is about the historical context of mason and dixon yes but a lot of it for me just as a writer and somebody who enjoys novels and is a little bit of insight into how this famously you know off the public record author i'm trying not to use reclusive because because he hates that word, right yeah Um, Yeah. off the public (laughs) record author uh, thinks and 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 you know that's so the cheese festival i think is one of those things like well let, forget because they they roll a double a double, uh, double gloucester um, mm-hmm. is what they roll um and he makes it an octuple and so it's big enough to send people flying uh, yeah so you just 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 that insight into how his brain works i think um, or how it worked in that moment is is what what i find fun and sort of valuable
0: oh i was just gonna tack on to that it it th- this episode came up at a good time because when i was looking up the the cheese rolling thing uh when I was putting together questions for this, I think they just recently did the, the, the one for 2023. Uh, and there was the woman who won got knocked unconscious during the event
1: <laughs> and still ended up
0: like taking her prize and then she went and get, she got checked out and everything. But I was just like, that is, that's perfect for the fact that, you know, everything, the way that happens in this book, um, it just kind of worked out. I I'm, I'm glad she's okay, obviously, but it just yeah. was one of those things. I was like, wow, that it, it just, is amazing the timing of that.
1: Apparently, apparently, people get hurt all the time because like the field where they do it is is uneven.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's I bet. Like <laughs> not,
1: it's like not not an ideal playing surface, so that that doesn't surprise me. I not read that. That's awesome.
2: <laughs> so you'd mentioned in your previous answer, kind of getting to know Pinchon better, these these aspects of of Pinchon that that prompted a question in me. Of, like, how did writing the companion, I guess, change your opinion of Pinchon or or how did you how do you feel like you got to know him him better or these aspects of his writing better i'm curious if there was any any different ways that you see his work after going through it with such a such a close viewing now
1: yeah i think in certain ways i I don't know that i want to say i take it more seriously um so much of the the discussion around Pinchon is is often about the silliness or just the weirdness, um, and sort of the postmodern relativity stuff. But it it really does feel like this is a person who has a value system, right? Like like this mm-hmm. is a person who is really in tune with with human morality and human ethics, and you know the ethics of relationships um and i think that can get a little lost in gravity's rainbow because it's such a i mean it's such a rightfully resentful and cathartically angry book in a lot of ways yeah. Um, oh, yeah and 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 this one is just touching a different nerve and and i think that's always there i mean and that's what i love about v right is that there is this kind of like it sounds maybe corny to say moral sense but there is a there is a like a deeply questioning moral person there um, who's who? Who wants people to have serious conversations, and 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 they have serious conversations without without them being, I think, without them taking themselves too seriously. I think that's my favorite part about Pinchon is he just mixes seriousness and fun so well, um, and that that's definitely something that I appreciate more after going through the companion, just how much he's in tune with big historical questions and how much I connect to Mason and Dixon on so many levels, just their, their distance from the power structures of the day, the fact that they can't do anything about it, the fact that they're still drawing this line and do they have a choice? Yes, maybe, maybe not. You know, uh, you know, they certainly could walk away. They're presented the opportunity to do that. I mean, there's just some really complex ethical questions uh, that are involved. and, And I came away from the book much, more focused on those um like what's the right thing for these guys to do mm-hmm. is it the right thing yeah. for them to keep drawing this line and i think i'm probably a little closer to no than i was <laughs> than i was at the beginning but that doesn't <laughs> diminish my sort of respect for them as three dimensional characters if that makes sense it's you know yeah. Pinchon forces yeah. you to live in both of those worlds at once
0: no absolutely, and I think that's I think that's something that kind of tends to get lost with a lot of people who attempt to read his work and, and bounce off is you know i've I've seen people talk about how they you know, oh, you know, there's all this just kind of silly stuff that's in there and, and there's no real characters and I'm, I always think like there are, and he's really touching it at these very important themes and topics, but like like any good comedian, you have to be able to you know craft the the jokes into what you're trying to get at you know the essence of of what it is you're trying to tell people and if yeah. you if you don't do it right then the message is totally lost and and so is the joke but he does both of those so well through all of his works and and I think people tend to focus too much too often on on either end of those either they focus too much on the the comedy and the weirdness or they focus too much on the mm-hmm the the theme and or not so much but the the darkness of it or the you know the message itself and and I think you have to kind of meet him in the middle of all of it and and take both sides of that and really let all of it kind of envelop you to really see what he's trying to get at because yeah he's throwing a ton of stuff at us as readers and and I love that but I I think that he's not the kind of author that you can go into his work with a singular focus and come out really having enjoyed it if you're, if you're trying to find this one thing in there and ignoring, you know, kind of, uh, you know, not seeing the forest for the trees, really.
1: Yeah. Ab- absolutely. I think there's a, early in part one, this, they're, they're talking to the learned English dog, and there's a, a riddle, right? It's, does the dog have a Buddha nature? And the answer is mute. Right. Um, which is a kind of Zen cone. And mu is the word for no, but it's also the word for nothing. So it's, it's kind of more complicated than no. And then in Against the Day, there's this question where uh, there's this part where Miles Blindell, I think, gets asked the same question and he just says yes and blows everybody's mind. Um, and those two things like feel like reading on to me, like figuring out when you should look deeper into the answer and when you should just accept the answer at face value. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't know how to do that yet, but I think that's <laughs> such a big part of It's like when to just accept the, the sort of humor, um, and when to, when to actually look for the million possible resonances this could have. Right. Um, yeah. so I, 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 you know, that was, that's something that I enjoyed about this project is trying to get a better, better handle on that.
2: Yeah. And I think that that's what makes Thomas Pynchon such an amazing author to me is that probably nobody knows when to just accept it or when to look deeper, other than Thomas Pynchon himself. And so, by kind of forcing that decision process on his reader, I feel like it, it, it causes you to need to engage more deeply with the text and consider those things like you're talking about this idea that it is a man with a worldview and a value system who's trying to impart something to his reader. But what that is, you know, that you take out of it, what that is that you approach it with ends up coming out of your own value system and, and where you're at and what you're willing to engage in. I think it's one of the things that makes him him genius, so that was all very eloquently put. So you've already
3: kind of addressed this with your, with your answer to my question about the Jesuits and the Jesuits uh, attempting to enter China. Uh, but there is... A good amount of focus on china in this book uh which i didn't really know if, if just to ascribe that to kind of the general western orient orientalism or if you know china was a significant conversation piece and news item around the time of the book
1: yeah i i think for me a lot of that stuff i mean there is there is definitely evidence of the jesuits um having been in china and having done missions there um and you know there's always concern or or an exoticism about about china for for a u.s audience i also read a lot of that as kind of a like you alluded to luke just a stand-in for kind of 90s new age healing philosophies right there's a lot of talk about acupuncture in the book (laughs) right um Mm -hmm. and 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 that becomes this sort of stand in for this other side of the coin, right? Maybe that goes back to to Kate's question about astrology, right? Um, There's, there's maybe not quite as much about astrology in part two, but there is a, there is a lot about acupuncture um, and about kind of meridians and sort of mystical healing. Um, And so I think that, that ends up framing that side of the conversation. If that, if that makes sense, I think, you know, yes, there is a real Jesuit relationship between the Jesuits and China. Um, but Pinchon's also using that kind of Eastern philosophy as a sort of stand in for these more mystical ways of knowing. And I think the characters in the book would probably look right. Like they would associate, they would exoticize China in that way too. (laughs) So it makes sense that, that Cherry Coke or whoever the narrator is would be, would be, would be doing that.
2: Would you say that the the mention of ley lines close to the end of, of part one would fit into to some of that not necessarily the exoticization of of China or or the the Asian part of the world but just one of those other metaphysical elements like you know astrology that he's including or acupuncture things like that or or do you think that's one of those cases where there's something something deeper worth more more attention there?
1: Yeah, I think I think I mean I think it's definitely a, an instance of mystical mystical knowledge um and and i certainly would associate it with with astrology and and with acupuncture um you know i was i I think you all mentioned this on the last episode but the fact that those monuments are sort of actually in a straight line (laughs) um, and i think that happens a few times in the book right this this sort of Mm -hmm. lines of energy lines of power i mean that's really what acupuncture is is about theoretically right the the Mm -hmm. highways of energy through the body and how to how to interrupt them in certain places and allow them to flow through other places. So, uh, you know, I think, I think that all ties into a, the same metaphor probably in, in very deep ways um, that, that because of the nature of the companion, I just didn't have time to really dig into each, each particular one. Right.
0: <laughs> sure. Yeah, <of> course. <laughs> um. I, well, I, so I'm, I'm out of my, uh, pre thought out questions, but I did want to know. Um, in, in doing this, in, in writing this companion, um, and, and now being done with it, um, does it make you do you have any desire to do another one for another one of his books, or are you, you kind of you know, this is the one and I'm, I'm done kind of thing?
1: Both, <laughs> um. <laughs> um... I I don't I just don't know that there's an obvious choice I mean I sure sure you know I'm not sure that Vineland a companion to Vineland would be as useful as one to Mason and Dixon Um, yeah I mean I mean again against the day is the book that probably stands out the, the most as like using a companion or, or maybe maybe being able to benefit from a companion um and that that would certainly be an interesting project um It'd
0: be a much bigger one I, mean, I think that's 500 extra pages yeah. so
1: yeah quite so the that's, daunting. That's, task, that's a lot yeah. longer um it's also i'm trying i really I, I, and you all you all love against the day right this i think oh I it's my favorite yeah that was your favorite yeah that's yeah my and favorite, I, yeah. I really it's, I really, really like it. Um, but I, I don't connect with it as much as, you know, Mason and Dixon or V even. Um, and so, and a lot of that's because I read V first. So, you know, it's like, do I, do I want to get to the place where I I think I would fall in love with it if I gave it, if I gave it serious attention? Um, that's really the only (laughs) possibility. And it's a really, there's a lot of kind of contingent variables (laughs) that that I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if it'll work out. Um, it's a thought. How about that? Oh, we'll leave it there in a pinch on adjunctive space. It's a thought I've had, Cody. <laughs> so thank you for making me articulate it and make it real. <laughs>
0: Luke, Kate, did y'all have any uh, any other questions?
1: Uh, no, I, I got don't. through all of them.
0: All right, well. Um, so, obviously, we've, we've got part one out of the way, and we're going to move into um, the bigger, much bigger part two, and I think generally agreed on is, is everybody's favorite part. Obviously, you know, there's, there's much more happening. Um, and, and there's a lot more, you know, history and, and, and weird knowledge for us to gain, uh, as we go through there. Um, I guess of, of these three parts is, is America your favorite as well, Brett? Do you, uh, or do you have more of a preference to the first or short third part?
1: It's hard to it's hard to tell. I mean, I, have you all read um, the Bolaño book, 2666, where, where every part is very different, but they're all integrated into the whole? I feel mm-hmm. that way a little bit about um, Mason and Dixon, where it's, you know, they all need to be there. I think I, I sort of fell in love with this book because of the first part um, and mm. just its kind of sense and of theme and kind of laying out all the stuff all the all the big ideas of the book sort of the the way that it starts to frame the relationship between mason and dixon um the the way that history is infused throughout it i think america is where the book definitely that second section you know comes into its own thematically um, and maybe the most memorable quotes are are definitely i think in that in that section um so yeah i i but the third part, the third part kind of brings it all home in this really yeah. awesome way. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to hearing what you all have to have to say about, about that. Um,
0: yeah. I kind of, I see it as I, I, I think reading it through this time um, it's, it, it felt a little, I felt about it the way I feel about Lord of the Rings where I feel like the, the fellowship of the ring is, is arguably my favorite of the three of those books, just because it's, it's setting everything up. You're getting to know all these characters. You're getting a sense of the world that they're in and the, the sort of, uh, formations of their relationships before the, the major events of the story take place. So I think I'm kind of with you that part one has that special feeling to it that, you know, I, I, I get everyone's affection for part two. There's so much great stuff that happens in there. Um, but I think it's important to really take your time with part one and and really cherish that time that you get to really know these characters and and get to feel how their relationships are kind of solidifying before everything else that's to come.
1: And part. Yeah, that's that's great. And part of my attachment to part one is also that I just spent more time with it um, because I think it it is establishing a lot of the historical stuff that I was less familiar with coming in. Right. I, mean, I think. Okay. Yeah america and 1760 you know there's a lot of stuff that, that there's definitely a lot of details and a lot of notes in the second part of the book but yeah. you know the, the the first part is half you know it's half as long as america almost half so, as yeah. long, and it's about this i spend yeah. about the same amount of words on it you know in the companion um just because there's so much obs- more i think obscure history there's so much more grounding of the the details so part of my my I think probably slight preference at the end of the day for the first part is just I spent a lot of time with it <laughs> you know I'm like really expense, yeah. really really trying to figure out like oh what is the East India Company and why mm-hmm. is it so big <laughs> and Why are they, they're <laughs> fighting wars aren't they a business um you know that that kind of stuff um and, and then once that's in place America you know a lot of my approach in the companion was like like annotate less because hopefully it just takes off for people from there. Um, and, mm. and so, you know, I think that's more of a enjoy the, the read and, and and worry a little less about the context because a lot of the important stuff will become clear. And, you know, after the first part, a lot of the side trips you're already familiar with in some way.
0: Yeah, you got the foundation laid so you can just kind of sit back and enjoy the journey.
2: Yeah. With your affection for the first part, is there, you know, an aspect of it or a scene or a chapter that stands out to you as being your favorite from that part of the book?
1: I love, you Some you all read the passage. One of you read the passage about the beetle. That's a great passage. Um, oh, yeah. Favorite passage the, the stuff at the Cape is just fantastic, I think. Um, and just the way that the transit of Venus for a moment sort of makes it seem like things might be okay. Like people stop Mm -hmm. beating their slaves and there's this sort of like mystical moment where maybe things could go a different way and they won't. But you get to sort of like there's just a richness to the way that's described to the possibilities of kind of cooperation and, and astronomical harmony. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what makes Pinchon, I think so wonderful for me is, is whenever it's starting to get dark, you do get one of those moments where like things might be different. You know, he, he's yeah. not a, he's not a resigned fatalist, you know, hip cynic kind of writer. I just don't think he is, even though I think some people will, will, put him in that box. Um, so, you know, I, I love that stuff at the Cape, um, for the way that it doesn't pull any punches about the, the the truth about what's going on, but the way it still somehow allows you to hope for something better. Um, that's a, that's something that I really appreciate.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm with you hundred percent on that. Well, um, that, uh, I think that'll take care of, of our questions for, Part one, um, Brett, I, we would love to have you back when we finish part two. Um, so if you want, uh, we'll, we'll definitely bring you back on and, and, you know, we'll definitely be reaching out to you more and more, uh, as we go through here because your, your knowledge and your, uh, clarifications on things have been absolutely helpful. And, and we really appreciate all the time that you've spent, you know, uh, emailing with us and, and, and answering our questions
1: yeah well i i had so much fun doing this i could talk about this book forever um i appreciate that yeah Mm -hmm. let me know i'd love to i would love to join you again i'm trying not to be the guy at the party that's like yeah but did you know how those chips were made you know um (laughs) uh, so uh, i'm so let me know you know (laughs) um you know i'm I'm happy to to help and i love talking about it so thank you all for the for the invite for letting me
2: letting me come to the party of course of course yeah it's our pleasure thank you so much Yeah, thanks, of course. Yeah, thanks.
0: All right, so uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, We will be taking a week off um, since we finished part one, so we'll be back in two weeks uh, to start on part two, and um, we will see everyone then. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.
3: See ya.
2: See ya later. Bye-bye.